You'll see there in our first verse from chapter 13, which this morning we're covering the story of chapters 13, 14, and 15 and, um, of Judges. And uh, you'll see there, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I want to draw your attention to that word again. You see that? Uh, and so I need to take a moment just to remind us of the context here of what's going on in in Judges. And so if you're visiting with us, you can sort of know and hear that. I wish I could do one of those things where they do the credits at the end. I wish I could do that for you. <laughs> and you could hear it real quickly. But anyway, here you, uh, the Judges, the context. Judges, uh, first of all, the word judge. It don't think of a judicial in the sense of ruling like us we have here making decisions. Think more military uh, leader um, and think of that as that what the word means. And uh, or chief or a chief, and the story of Judges, where it is, is the seventh book of the Bible. And back uh, in Genesis, God had promised Abraham, uh, one of God's men, had promised him a land. And the land uh, he promised to him is finally goes through a lot of difficult things, but it's finally been delivered to God's people. In the book prior to Judges, in Joshua, the leader Joshua takes God's people into this land that God had promised him. But when they come into this land, uh, as they begin to conquer it, God had two uh, commands for them as they came into this land, if you may remember those. The commands were these. One, do not intermarry with any, any of, the, um, uh, of the Canaanites who live there and even the tribes. And two, he wanted them to also destroy all of them. Which, if you wanted that, that sounds very difficult, a command of a God to be that. And you can go back and listen to as we address that particular difficult truth to think about. But that was the two commands that God gave them going into the land. And they didn't obey it. And it's been the struggle ever since. They didn't really listen to God on either one of those commands. And so we, um, as we come, uh, and, oh, and the other command was to destroy uh, all the other idols. I'm sorry, I left one out. Was to destroy the idols. Those of you are going, hey, Shane, you forgot one. It really was the two commands were get rid of all the people there and, don't, and tear down all their idols. And one of the things God also said was not to intermingle with them. He had already told them that before. So when we get there, the other thing you need to know about Judges is what we've called the cycle. And I'll say this, who uh, admit that there's a cycle in Judges. And the cycle sort of goes like this in God's people and his relation to God where they turn away from God and don't hear and listen to his commands. They turn away from him and turn to other gods and, and live for themselves and look to other gods. Uh, when they do that, uh, the Lord, in, out of discipline for them and retribution, punishment for their sins, he often raises up other people groups to come in and oppress them. Then in their oppression, as they find themselves lowly, they cry out to God. And then they will cry out to God for help. Now, usually this is not really repentance. It's usually just we want relief from our circumstances. Sort of a form of turning back to God, but not fully. But God in his mercy always sends a judge or a savior to rescue them. And that's the pattern. So when you see here when we get to chapter 13, it says, And the people of Israel again. They do this thing, and this phrase has been over and over. They do what's right, evil in the sight of the Lord. That's interesting to remember. You and I don't get to determine what's evil and what's not. What's evil is determined by God. And it's in his sight that these things are difficult. And so that's the cycle. And another thing to think about it is think, uh, if you will, if I may, uh, think toilet. <laughs> Don't just think going in a circle. Think spiraling down. It keeps getting worse, all right? And it goes down. So it's a spiral. It's not just a circular cycle. They're getting worse as they go. So here we are at the end of Judges. We're getting to the final judge. There's 12 judge. And we come to this guy, Samson. 
He's the final judge, and that's where we are. And we're looking at three, this week we looked at three, those of you who are doing the studies, we only look at three uh, of the chapters of his life. There's a fourth one. I'll address that next week in some of the story of this week as well. They'll sort of be blended. But we're looking at the three chapters of his part of the story. And I don't know about you, but if you thought of Samson growing up, or if you've ever heard of Samson or thought about him, my guess, if you were like me, it was this. It's like he's like, kind of like Hercules and strong, and you want to be like Samson, be strong, and, and do things for God. Is that the way you thought of him? That's the way, if I'm honest, without really knowing the Bible, that's the way I historically have thought about it. And if this is the first time you ever read closely the life of Samson, you read his life, and you're like, seriously? His life is overwhelmingly bad, and your first thought is, God is using a guy like this? By the way, I wanted to, you know, he takes a jawbone. I'm going to say this. He takes a jawbone and hits, you know, takes an ass, a dog. I mean, I, I wanted to title the sermon, Can God Use an Ass? <laughs> That's in the Bible, that word. <laughs> I mean, he's bad. And <laughs> it can be very confusing. So how do, I mean, I don't know if you feel, it can be confusing. How do I, should I view a man like this and God actually using him? That, I mean, that, I think that's one of the main things. Do y'all remember these? This is called a stereogram. Do y'all remember this, what I have on the screen? Do y'all remember when those came out? I remember when I was a kid they came out. Do y'all know what those are? They're sort of like these 3D hidden pictures that if you stare at them in a way, if you learn, let your eyes adjust, there's a 3D picture hidden in it, you know? So I'm not going to give you time to do that. It takes a while uh, to do it. But there's a hidden picture in this particular picture. And we'll, I'll leave it up for the potluck. And y'all can stand and see if you can do it, all right? <laughs> all right, this is the picture that's actually there. I wish I could get a donkey. I couldn't. But the one that's hidden is a dinosaur. See it there, the next one? So uh, if you were to look at it, uh, these... Uh, I think they're called stereograms or whatever they were. Uh, but the point is, you can't see it correctly unless you ha- let your eyes adjust. You have to, to, in order to see the picture correctly, your eyes have to adjust. And um, I would just argue for us that we have to, this morning, what I hope is that our eyes can adjust so that we can see Samson correctly, which is a very confusing to see and understand. But that's my goal this morning is for you to see him correctly and in relation to God. I mean, you, and what's God doing? And what's going on in this story? I think we can adjust our eyes, I hope. Not answer everything, kind of from this morning, but adjust our eyes to hopefully see the Samson story a little better. Now, I want to frame the story one more time. I feel like this is important. And I want to frame it with this language using the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Uh, in our garage that we'll be having tonight, a little FCA thing that we do for Danville, we're talking about being fit for a king, that people want to build, a king, uh, build their own kingdom. They want to build the kingdom of self or build the kingdom of God. And I think that will help us at least understand Samson. But let's look back and just let me put Samson in the right place. So if you'll walk with me here just for a second. First, let's just think about the story of the Bible. This is a very general story, all right? But in, in, in essence, let's look at this. You see that God creates the heavens and earth, creates his kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. That's his creation. And it was good, and he said that. There was a serpent there, Satan, and he was an angel. God actually created him too, all right? So I don't know how God did that, and evil came to the world. That's sort of part of some of the struggle here in this passage. But there was a serpent. And he wants to deceive man, God's people, Adam and Eve, that he's made them. And the way his strategy is, 
as, a, as one who opposed God, is that he offers to them sort of tricks Adam and Eve to say, hey, you should build your kingdom of self. You can be like God. He basically offers them to build their own kingdom and to be like God. Now, that happens and doesn't go well, and they break the commands of God, and they eat the fruit that God had told them not to eat, and their eyes are opened. But then God is so gracious, and in that moment, God still graciously moves towards Adam and Eve. And we've recovered this before, but we learn in Genesis 3, after they've eaten of the fruit, that there's a story now in the Bible that will unfold, and we're living in this story, that there now will be two seeds, if you will, S-E-E-D-S, Two trains, and you'll, people will fall in these two categories. Either you'll be a seed of the serpent and be of his lineage, which will be opposed to God, or you'll be a seed of the woman who will be God's people. And from what we learn in that passage is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the hill. Now, this is foreshadowing way back in creation that one day from the seed of the woman, one will be born, Jesus, who will crush the serpent once and for all. It will look like the serpent wins when he dies. The serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush it. As a matter of fact, throughout Judges, we've seen imagery in Judges of where women have crushed the skulls of men, echoing back that God's seed will always win. So you and I live in this war between either being a, you're either two people, either a seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. And so that's even what Judges is. Judges is the Canaanites. And so this week, it's the Philistines, a part of the Canaanites, and they are the seed that hates God's people, or is of the wrong seed. And there's God's people, Israel, and they are that. And so ultimately, how this plays out is that this is basically non-Christians or Christians as it plays out. Really, we learn that Israel, it's not that they're physical, but it's really the Israel of the heart. Is which is. So if you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, you are of the seed of the woman, of the seed that Jesus came from. And one day, God will, the Christians, you see the line stops, and they won't, but the gods that are part of this seed will make it to the new kingdom, the new heavens, and the new earth. Now, which side is Samson on? Now, we're not going to look at his whole story, but Samson's on this side. Now, how in the world do you get from this side to that side? And who puts it, listen, you... The only way you move from the seed of the serpent to the seed of the, of the woman is by the grace of God. You don't decide, hey, I want to be there. The grace of God, he brings you. And although he's a knucklehead, I want you to know he is on this side. And that, we'll argue for that next week. But using the kingdom of self, those who are not followers of Christ live and breathe, be, build only their own kingdom of self. That's all they do. And it's in contrary to God. But if you're of a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you are of the seed of the woman, and you got there by your grace. But until the full kingdom comes, guess what's going to be a problem? You're going to have this battle within you between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. Although you're of the right seed, it will be a battle. As a matter of fact, right now, I bet most of you are worn out and ready for that battle to be over. I am. I'm tired of the war within me against my selfishness, against my impulsiveness, against the brokenness of this world that sin has caused, against the pain, against the sickness. I'm worn out. So the key thought for this morning is this. And so we look at Samson as we look at him closely, and he's on this side. Here's our key thought. It's on the next slide. Our key thought is this. 
We struggle with our eyes to see the battle correctly between the building of the kingdom of self and the building of the kingdom of God. We need to refocus our eyes. I hope we can do that. Lord, would you help us, Lord, as we look now at Samson and we look at you? Would you help me? (laughs) Well, Lord, I can't do something that only you can do, which is give us sight, give us understanding. May your word help us. And Lord, um, would you have mercy on us? And Lord, as we look at even a difficult truth and a difficult reality, nevertheless, would you let us finish with great hope? And Lord, we need it as we come to this table that will will remind us of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll first look at Samson and how he built the kingdom of God. Of self, all right? And uh, he was born, and uh, we'll revisit that in a second. But Samson was basically building his own kingdom in two ways. He's Remember, now he's of the right side here. God's graciously, at the end of the story, he looks like he, he finally finishes well at some level. But it was terrible up to this point. We're seeing a terrible part of his life. Um, but he, he uses his strength. And how did he build his own self? He used his strength. Um, he rips the. He he actually had had supernatural power, physical strength that God gave him, and he would have it at different times. He rips a lion in half. He uh, he kills thirty Philistines by himself in one thing over an argument uh, over over a little argument they had. Uh, they broke their uh, a bet that they had with him. It's actually in chapter fourteen verse. Uh, actually, yeah, chapter fifteen verse nine. Actually, he he was known as a warrior so much probably that the Philistines when they came and they're in this this kind of battle with him and mad at him. It says that they brought a whole army. They encamped around for one guy. It's just one dude, and then. The, Jew, the uh, Israelites who sort of want to negotiate with the Philistines, they take 3,000 people to go talk to Samson and say, hey, man, they want to conquer you. Could you come out of here? They take 3,000. Then he gets in a fight, and he kills 1,000 with a jawbone. This dude was strong, and God had given him unbelievable strength. I mean, just to think about it, I haven't ever done anything with 1,000. He kills 1,000 people, like thousand cheeseburgers maybe I've eaten, you know? I mean, what, what have you ever done a thousand of? Have you ever just thought about taking a lion and just ripping it? I mean, God is using him. He has great gifts. Let me just pause right there and say this. We have the ability to use our strengths and our gifts that are from God and use them for ourselves and for our own glory. What did you have in your life, no matter what it is, that did not come from the Lord. I mean, it's like LeBron James at six foot nine, 260 pounds, playing basketball against Hudson and Xander. And be like him standing over, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like he didn't, he didn't make himself 6'9. He didn't make himself 6'10. He didn't make himself run like the wind. He, he was given that. That's all of our gifts. And he used them to build the kingdom of self. But he was strong. He was really strong. But then he also was true of him was that he was impulsive, arrogant, and a punk. Did I put punk up there? He was impulsive, arrogant, and selfish. He really was. He was super impulsive, super arrogant. These are the words that came out of the studies, our connect groups this week, talking about it. What do you think of Samson? These are the words I heard. And it was true. And uh, right out of the gate, when he, um, 
uh, right out of the gate, when he is, uh, we learn that he's born and the Spirit of the Lord sort of came upon him, he goes down, and the first thing he does is that he goes, uh, he, the first, it tells us that he goes down to look for a wife. And he goes to the Philistines, and he's not supposed to intermarry. And he goes, and he's, and one of God's commands, that's the first thing he does. And then look how he finds his wife. What does he say? She looks good to my eyes. That's the only reason I want her. It's like, hey, mom, dad, get her for me now. I just see it. I want it. I take it. Objectifies women. He's a womanizer. The story tells us that he, he ends up in a terrible relationship with this particular wife. Then she gets, she, uh, gets taken away from him, which I'm going to tell you about in a second. And then he uh, goes with a prostitute, and then he's with Delilah. I mean, he's got broken women in his relationships, but he views them as what's good to my eyes. The worth of a woman is only what she does for me. He's a womanizer. And his cravings and his desires, he's arrogant. His parents actually come to him and say, hey, have you thought about, uh, which, have you thought about not, it being, not being a Philistine? And they actually use a negative word. The uncircumcised, they call that, why don't you marry an Israelite? They, that word they used was not like they were godly in that sense, thinking about it. It was a negative sort of uh, pejorative word towards the, towards the um, Philistines. They called him uncircumcised. But they just like, hey, why don't you marry one of us? And he doesn't listen to counsel. He doesn't listen to anyone. He's arrogant. He exploited them. And he's demanding. I don't know if you noticed when he, um, when he uh, at the end of the part of the scriptures we read, when he at the end kills with a thousand, he talks to God. Did you see how he talked to God? It was as if he's telling the Lord what to do. So if he feels it, he does it. If he sees it, he takes it. He's impulsive, he's arrogant, and he does pretty terrible things along the way. I uh, thought of this all week. A good friend of my family growing up, <laughs> and um, he told a story one time, and, uh, and he told this story, and it was to his shame. He was very embarrassed by this story. And he's a grown man, and he's a friend of mine, and he was at a concert in Nashville, and was tired, it was late, it was traffic, he couldn't get out of the traffic, I mean, it's just miserable, he's tired, he didn't really want, I don't think he even really wanted to go to the concert, he went with the people, and he's driving out, and he, <laughs> he pulls up to a red light, and sort of cuts off, something happens, and this, you know, road rage sort of takes place, because the how they put up the light, one cut one another off in traffic, whatever, well, these teenage boys roll down their windows, and start cussing at him, and he rolls down his window and starts cussing at him, like, no, you cut me off, and you cut me off. Well, the teenager just gives him the middle finger and says, well, here to you. And he goes, well, here's to you. And the guy goes, well, here's to you. And he goes, well, right back at you. And they go back and forth and riding down the road. This is a grown man. And they just give each other the, the uh, middle finger the whole ride. And he, I remember him telling that story. He was so embarrassed. He's like, I just became a boy. Samson does the same thing. He's boyish. He's a man body, man strong, but he functions like a little boy. He takes this woman, has a party, is drinking, which, by the way, I know many of you are thinking about this Nazarite vow he took. We're looking at that next week. But he's drinking, he comes up with a riddle for the guys. And it makes a big wager. 
and doesn't tell them what it is and is going to take some clothing from them. They, they, they cheat on the wager and get his wife to tell him the answer. And he gets mad. He's like, well, you cheated. So he's like, well, he goes and kills 30 other men and gives them the clothing. Well, they get mad. He's like, well, you killed our friends. And guess what they do? They take his wife. The dad gets mad at him, takes his wife, and gives him to another woman. He's mad about that. You know what he does? Samson goes and lights up 30 foxes or jackals, sets it on fire, and gets rid of all their livelihood and all their finances. And then they're mad. Guess what they do? And then they kill his his, uh, wife and and her father. And then he gets mad, and guess what he does? And he kills a a large number of them. Well, then they're really mad as a country, and guess what they come and do? We're going to find this Samson guy. And we'll say, well, the Israelites are, we're scared, we're scared, we'll go get him. Well, guess what he does? And he takes takes a jawbone and kills them all. It's just you, you, you. He functions like a boy. And so do the Philistines. (coughs) Impulsive. And on top of that, one noticing thing about him is that he's alone. I don't know if you see that, but he's alone. This is the first judge that there's no people following him. And listen, you wouldn't like him. We wouldn't want to be around him. You can probably think of what he was like to be around. He's a little boy. Well, when you look at... uh, When you look at um, Samson and the extremes that he goes to, you can sort of be, not see things correctly and say, wow, I had never killed a thousand men. I had never burned somebody's whole livelihood. Part of what God is doing is letting us see the extreme places that Samson went to show us how far gone everybody is in Judges. But don't let his extremities not hide the fact that you and I can be just as impulsive, just as emotional. We could go home and play pity parties like he did when he got mad and went home and and he lost a bet. That you and I are capable of those things. Just last week, last weekend, um, I took the Saturday um, to clean our our two rugs and a carpet room. I cleaned it, steamed it, Took a long time. I hate using those things. It's sort of rewarding to finish and steam the carpets. And um, there was a smell that we were trying to get rid of in one of the rugs. And that evening, I'm tired, worn out, just want to watch some football. And guess what our new dog does? (laughs) He poops right on that rug. And... I wish I could tell you that I wasn't impulsive, loud, but I was. I, by George, I have a right to say this. As a matter of fact, there was one point in the story, where, where in the next verse, where, where Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines. He thought he had the right to do what he needed to do to them. And I looked at my kids and I have worked all day. And I'm tired, I'm really, really tired. And so therefore I have the right to yell and scream and be mad and become unhinged with that. I bet if you were to pause and think about your life, those places, there's a resemblance of it anywhere. We're more, he's more of a mirror of who we are than we're willing to admit. Not everybody goes to that extreme that he does, but we all have that potential. 
And we all see that present in our lives. So here comes the hard part as we finish. We have these passages like 14.1, 4, it says, His father and his mother did not know it was from the Lord. What was from the Lord? It was the Lord's will for him to marry a Philistine. So God, it says here that God was actually in charge of him marrying something that God told him not to do. Go figure that. And all these terrible things he was doing, the scriptures tell us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Every time, see those places? It was God working on him. Now, one thing I would offer us is I think that we oftentimes, as we begin to wrestle with the sovereign rule of God, how sovereign is he? And we sort of like the idea that maybe when our brokenness or our pain, maybe even in death and many things in your life, you begin to say, okay, God was ruling over that and he's sovereign. But one thing that's really hard for people to get is that God rules over sin. What? You can go to the next slide. That God would also be ruling over sin. Now, this isn't new in the Bible, which, by the way, if we've been reading Judges, you know when he raises up a people group to make his people, he's ruling over the sinners and the non-sinners. This isn't a new truth. But there's something about when we see it and we look at this and say, how could God use a guy like Samson? He was terrible. And it was God working behind the scenes and doing it. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. How could that be? Well, there's a few things I want you to see as we wrestle with that. And we struggle with that. Because here's the line that you'll hear. Oh, now God wasn't in that. So there's things in this world that God's not ruling over? Is that the world you want to live in? Let me give you a few thoughts. People come to this and they see Samson and they say, why would he use him? How in the world is this guy in the hall of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews looked upon that God used him and talked about how is he there? And we go, how could we use him? We look at it and we think that, well, listen, have you thought about Noah? Drunk. Abraham, polygamist, pimped out his wife twice. Jacob, didn't do anything good till the end. A weenie and a liar. Moses, he's in the hall of faith. Murderer. Weak, scared. I mean, <laughs> you think there's this virtuous men all the way across the board in the hall of faith? No, we don't think about it that way. But then we come and we... Think, well, think about this. Theologically, if God uses a person, by nature he's using a sinner. Which means also, if he's using anybody, he's using a sinner. He's using a really bad sinner this morning. If he's using anybody, he's using, which means for God to use people, he's always gracious. He's always working. His grace is never bound up. When he's working, he's being gracious. No matter which side of the seed it's on. He's gracious and he's working. But here's the other thing, too. When we come to this and we, we come, it's like, well, he's not as virtuous as I would like for him to be, as my hero. The problem is, is that we make humans our heroes. Hello? That's the problem. It's like, well, I, uh, now, now, there is room 
to look for men who are virtuous, and I'm not saying that, but in the end, think about this. Would you rather follow him or Deborah? I'd pick Deborah 100 times over. But the error comes when I look to Deborah and forget that, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what's going on in Deborah that is good is God. And I'm ultimately following God. Don't put your hope in men. Don't put your hope in me, your church, its people. Don't put your hope in them. Don't look at them that way. But God, still the hard part is this. Does he rule over sin? And the answer is yes. He rules over it. He ruled over the sin that crucified him. It was his will for them to crush you. Remember what Pilate said to Jesus at the crucifixion? He said, you have, I have the power, Jesus, for you to live or die. What did Jesus say? Nope, you have the power which my Father in heaven gives you. We're in charge of this story, not you, Pilate. What did, that, what did Joseph say when his brothers put him into slavery? And they said, they said, uh, they said, he said, what you intended for evil, which was sinful, God intended for good. Joseph realized God was in charge of that. God is always ruling over sin. Now, here's the thing. You say that, and this is my, our own struggle. I struggle with this too. How can he rule over sin and yet not be the author of sin? When we say that he rules over sin, it doesn't mean that he's sinful. And it doesn't mean that he created the sin. I don't know. Kevin can answer that question for you. I can't. How did it, where did it come from? But here's what the Bible, so meaning the Bible is clear. And multi, all over the scriptures, which I'm just not going to read. I had a bunch of them for you. I was going to read them be powerful, right? <laughs> but the sin's he, there is no sin within him. So he rules over it in a way that he remains completely sinless and pure and righteous. And I don't know how that works. The founder of this denomination, I've said this before, had a, a trite saying. When I was a young Christian, I was like, how do you do all this, Frank Barker, Reverend Barker? And he says, God ordains and rules over sin in such a way that he has nothing to do with it. Well, I didn't help. He said, that's the point. But don't take, care, don't take away that he rules over it, right? Don't take that away because now we're in a universe that we don't want to be in. So he rules over it. So here's, here's the way we have to process Samson. It doesn't mean that Samson's sin was not sin. It was sin and it was wrong. And his life is not worth emulating. As a matter of fact, what the Bible shows us, even God working and stirring and working on him and in every way, it still shows us that his sin, he had a miserable life. He was brokenhearted by all these women, and he kept responding in anger and deserving that. He was, his life was ruined. It's in shambles. In the end, he just sort of finishes with one last hurrah, trusting God. But his sin did not bring about a prosperous life. And we ought to tell our children, do not be like Samson in this regard. And do not look to do, don't want to emulate his life. I long, it would be better to be obedient than to live like Samson. But at the same time, and I, by the way, Samson should repent of those sins. But at the same time, my sin and your sin is not so powerful that it stops God or that it thwarts his ways or that it thwarts his plan and what he's doing. Isn't that right, my sister? It's our only hope. 
in 2017, I'm going to be vulnerable with you. Uh, lowest point in my life. And I realized that some of the things I had been through, through in my job uh, here, some difficult things, years in the church, and even different things probably from my past, uh, many circumstances were affecting me. And a lot of those weren't my fault. They just weren't. I encountered some very difficult things and people. But the way it was manifesting itself, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I actually get, someone comes along and helps, gives me a diagnosis of complex PTSD. I don't need to talk to me about it later. But in my home, I was saying and doing things and the rage I had and the way that I was speaking to my children and my wife. And my wife had to stand between me and my children over the, because they won't put their shoes in a shoebox and because they won't dribble with the right hand in a basketball game. And the way I was... It was like everything was a level 10 for me. And it was, and listen, I can give you all the reasons, some of the whys that happened were going on in my life that sort of helped me understand it. But what was also true is I was guilty. And even out of my own hurts and pains that weren't my fault, I was still a villain in how I acted and hurt my family. My wife had to throw up. A balloon, or throw up a, a, a flag and say, somebody's got to help my husband. And the things that I did and said and the rage that I felt. I didn't hit anybody, if you're wondering that. I was close. So, I have to look back at that and say that how the decisions I made were wrong and they were sinful and they were impulsive. And I look back at that and go, how, what was that going to do to my children? Are they ever, and my wife, are they ever going to be, okay, but it was wrong and it was guilty and I repented and I reframed all of them and I took them before the blood of Jesus and I've worked it out with them. And you can talk to some of the older ones especially. Hear their stories. Their dad has begged for their forgiveness. It was wrong. I was Samson-like. And yet, when I think about what, what trajectory did I put the children? What's that going to be for them? What's that going to be like with their children? What's that going to be like with my wife? What's the next 10 years have? When I begin to think about that, my hope as I have repented has been that there is a God who rules over sin. And my sin cannot thwart their life and his plan for you. And which one of us has not got sin going in all kinds of directions? And our only hope is that there is a God who's also sovereign over Madison's story, Brittany's story, Macy Grace's story, Hadley, Hudson, Xander, and all their stories. That's my hope. So I repent and beg for his mercy, but I also rest in the hope of the sovereign God who is working. He ruled over my sin, and it will be part of their story, and yet it was terrible. 
And that is the God we worship, whose sin is turned upside down. It doesn't have the last say in our lives. And so God wants you to see this because you want to know what the other part of the story is. Have you ever asked the question in the Samson story, why in the heck is a birth story told in all of this stuff? Why do we learn in chat when we hear Samson, we're told how he's born. Who cares how he's born? Unless his birth. As a picture and a foreshadowing. Of a birth that truly is. A, when, when we read this story, God's reminded us, I know it looks bad, but let your eyes adjust and see that yes, Samson is a bad person, but I rule over his sin and I rule over everything. And just so you know, there's a king who is coming. And it's a foreshadowing of that. You ever, why, why tell his birth story? It's a barren woman. And an angel comes to her. And she's scared. And they're both scared. And they don't know what to do. And he says, his name shall be this and what? What shall it be? And you know what? We didn't read this part. But then he talks to Manoah, the husband. And the angel does. And he says, what's your name? Manoah asks. He says, it's too wonderful. You know what, what, what wonderful is? Think of Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father. In the midst of this, our hope in the midst of all the things that are going on is that God is executing a plan for the seed of the woman. And the only reason you and I are a part of it is because he's brought us into it. And our sin, we should repent of it and not be like that, but he's ruling the day. And we are only a part of that because of his grace. And he assures it by the birth and then ultimately the resurrection, the death and resurrection of his son. And he wants to remind us of that. You look to that and no other hero. Don't look to Samson. Don't look to Noah. Look to the one who was born. Born to a virgin. So, The most miserable and destructive way to live is to try to build the kingdom of self. Yet our hope is that the kingdom of God is being built and nothing can stop it. Nothing. Go back and look at your life and your sin and repent. And sit in it and weep over it. But don't Weep in a way that you think your sin is governing this world. It's not. Our king is. And this table that we come to today is to remind us of that. Let's pray. Lord, as we come uh, today and think about all of our stories and all of our pain, <laughs> And all of our sin, we're very mindful that um, of it, and maybe even more so today than we should be, or no, not we should, than we thought we would be. But we're thankful, God, that you're king, and you have ruled, and you have um, accomplished your work, and it's no longer foreshadowing for us that everything that the birth of Samson pointed to has all come to be true. We know it. And we see it. And I pray, God, that even now, that you would, your spirit would grant um, freedom and repentance and hope for us in our lives.
as we come to this table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.